ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. I never got to interview Jimmy Little before he died, and now I'm sorry I missed out. There was never an Australian popular singer who could match Jimmy's honeyed, smooth vocal style. And now that I've read his daughter's biography of him, I can see how loved and admired Jimmy was as a gentle, kind and upright man in a brutal, ugly music industry. Francis Peters Little is here today. Francis is the only child of Jimmy Little and his wife Marjorie. Jimmy was approached many times in his life to have his biography written, but he and Marjorie insisted that it had to be Francis that wrote it. Francis Peters Little is a filmmaker, an historian, a former TV producer and musician, and of course she seemed to them to be the obvious candidate. And now, more than a decade after her father's death, Francis has written her father's story, and it's been worth the wait. Francis writes that Jimmy Little was not a political activist, nor a leader, and he never claimed to be a cultural elder, but he became all three. In the 60s and 70s, Jimmy topped the charts with songs that ranged from pop to country to gospel, and he had an astonishing comeback in the late 1990s and 2000s. Jimmy's appeal as a singer was pretty much universal, but he was very sure of his origins and never forgot his country and where he came from, which gave Francis Peters Little the title of her biography, Jimmy Little, A Yorta Yorta Man. Hi, Francis. Hi, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. There's a photo of you in the book as a little girl looking up adoringly at your dad. What was Jimmy to you as his only child, Francis? Yeah, that photo pretty much tells the story. I did adore my father. I was very fortunate that I had such um, a caring father and also to be an only child. So I got a lot of uh, attention from my parents. What was his sense of humour like with you? Oh, Dad's sense of humour. He gives real meaning to the the phrase, Dad's jokes. (laughs) I mean, he was just so dry. You know, you'd have to laugh the way that he wanted to make people laugh. (laughs) Did you go on the road with him? Because he was always touring. Oh, yeah. Mum and Dad took me on the road when he was touring. They'd take me everywhere and the old Holden station wagon, a bed in the back for me, you know, amongst the footlights and amplifiers and <laughs> or a cubby house or something and motels and stuff. Could you sleep through all that? Absolutely. I, I'd be backstage and Mum and Dad would make a bed up for me in one of the suitcases and I'd sleep through all that music. So I can't, I, I can't be woken now easily. I, I, <laughs> I get to sleep through any noise now. There's a wonderful quote on the back cover of your book from Troy Cassadaly who says, Jimmy introduced me to the phrase, don't mistake kindness for weakness. What was he able to teach you about gentleness and kindness? Well, I grew up in a different era where you look at the 60s and the 70s and the thing was to go out there and be really radical and noisy and stuff. And that was my generation. But as I get older, I think those words of being kind and gentle are actually the strong ones. And, you know, I'm starting to change and, and 
realise how my father's strength was there. I knew he was strong, but it was mistaken quite often that he didn't have a backbone, you know, because he was kind and gentle. But now I realise that kindness and gentleness is actually a strength that we should have. It seems he was crazy about your mum, Marjorie. They were married for 53 years. What do you know of how he met Marjorie? Oh, it was quite funny. They used to have Aboriginal football uh, fundraisers. So they went to this barn dance that was there in Alexandra and he'd, he'd spotted my mum from the outcome. You know, he, he knew he was smitten. She wasn't so keen, but in the barn dance where you change partners all the time, she came, he was waiting for her to get there and she just sort of said, oh, could you sing a song for me if you're going to sing? And he said, oh, I might. <laughs> he was trying to play cool. Right. That was um, his first and last attempt to play hard to get, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't work. So she says, oh, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Did they stay in love all that time? Yeah. Yeah. They were friends before they became girlfriend and boyfriend. And I've never heard them call each other by their first names. They always called each other love. And uh, a lot of people who know and and have met my mum and dad would say the same thing. So, yeah, they were a bit lovey-dovey. <laughs> Jimmy's father, your grandfather, was an entertainer too. You've got his story in your book. Mm. How versatile was Jimmy Senior as an entertainer, Francis? Oh, he was doing all that sort of, you know, in the vaudeville days and travelling. And so there was Partly, you know, he was with the Wollig Lake Gumleaf Band and then he formed his own band, which was just called the Leaf Band. And they would do anything from traditional dances or they'd ham it up for audiences, you know. And um, When you say a Gumleaf Band, do you mean like the, the men were playing like literal gum leaves? Oh, yeah. They do all sorts of popular songs, Take You Home, Kathleen, and all those <laughs> sorts of things on the Gumleaf. And he had quite a sense of humour. He'd... When he'd, before he'd go out on stage, he'd walk out and he'd poke his head through the curtains to sort of see the crowd and stuff like that. Then he'd poke his tongue at them. <laughs> but he danced. Uh, he, was, he was very funny. He was like a comedian. And he also combined a lot of that with traditional stuff. He met his bride, Sissy, your grandmother, on Kamaragunja Mission, which is on the Murray River. And that's where Jimmy was born in 1937. What did Jimmy tell you about the circumstances of his birth? Well, he was lucky to be alive. The circumstances of people, particularly babies back in the 1930s on missions and, and reserves for Aboriginal people, weren't the best conditions. They were very difficult, not being given proper rations. They didn't have much control. They didn't have much money and much choice, really, so... If you managed to get through as a baby, you were doing really well. The mission was on Yorta Yorta country. Did people catch and grow their own food on that mission? Well, before the mission manager, who was A.J. McQuiggan, the people at Cumbergunja were able to farm. There, you know, there was cattle and sheep. It was very much a sheep station. And they did grow vegetables and things and... They were able to live pretty much a very healthy life with the work that they did. But then when the different manage, um, mission manager came down, they weren't allowed to do those things anymore and they were forced to farm and, and things for the, the actual station and not for themselves. 
this man, McQuiggan, whom you mentioned there. How it changed when he arrived? How did he affect the lives of people like your grandparents and, and the infant Jimmy? Um, well, previously he was a manager up at Kinchilla Boys' Home, which was up near Kempsey, and he was sacked from there for his cruelty to the young boys. So he gets down to Kamragunja and he's just, he was just bitter and brutal and, you know, they'd get weevils in their rations, they'd have to get really cheap cuts of meats, rancid meat sometimes. The water that they got was often the water that was given out to the animals and not clean water and, and if people were sick and things like that then they didn't get much treatment either. That was the way he treated people. And what happened when the the residents on the mission got together and tried to complain to the board about his rule over this mission? Well, they tried to take action. They wrote letters to the welfare board. They said, this guy, he's cruel, he's not doing you know very well. And they had, at that time, a very strong, educated man who was an Aboriginal man by the name of William Cooper with the fame that he did with protesting against Kristallnacht in Germany and stuff. He used to write letters. He'd go to meetings with them and their pleas would go on deaf ears. So this went on for quite some time, months and months, until they thought, look, the only thing that we can do now is actually walk off the mission. And they crossed the bridge over the Murray and um, entered into Victoria because that would escape the New South Wales missions. And they camped wherever they could. And my grandparents were there and Dad was a baby in arms, you know, so they carried him over the, the long walk to protest and strike against the treatment that they were given. Did you know this story before you started researching it? Did Jimmy tell you this story? Oh, look, I think it's probably really well known in Aboriginal circles and stuff. That was a very major thing to do in 1939 to actually have the gall to strike against the, the government and just get up and walk miles. And how did the strike pan out? Well, one of the sad things about it, they went over and then the welfare board said, oh, look, it's, it's okay, you know, he'll, he'll be better next time, go back. And they went back and he got even, you know, nastier. And so, of course, they had a second strike and it wasn't really until after that that the welfare board decided to sack him from there as well. After this, you write that the family eventually went off to live somewhere near Goulburn in New South Wales. And you write that they were kind of happy times for Jimmy. Jimmy had this kind of gift of looking at the, at the happiest memories of that era. And he remembers his dad coming home with a giant bag of biscuits for the family. He mm. seems to have had this ability to sort of look back on hard times and see the, the small and lovely things that made it almost magical for him. What do you think about all that, Francis? Look, they had a very tough life. It was an itinerant life. They had to travel from place to place to find work with fruit picking or timber work or farming and things. And by the time they're up there, his memories are, are really clear that, you know, they were happy times. And I used to think that was very strange. But I, I realise now that partly it's it's sort of natural for a lot of people to think about their childhood as a happier time. A lot of people think that their childhood was a happier time than what they see things are like now. 
So there's partly that. And then there's the other side of my dad just being that kind of person. And I think he was also comforted a lot by his parents and chose to focus on those good things. You're right that there was tuberculosis circulating around at the time. And that carried off two of his siblings, his sister Madeline and his brother Ernest in 1938 and 39. They died in their infancy. I wonder if that made Jimmy sort of extra precious to his parents at the time. Yeah, I'm pretty sure because, you know, he, it's amazing that he survived a lot of those things that were the hardships and stuff. And then, of course, they lose two children after he's born. So, yeah, he was aware that he was getting the extra special treatment and he still always felt really sad about losing a brother and a sister, you know. He remembered all that. Yeah, tuberculosis was something that took away a lot of people, particularly on Kamraganja Mission. I wonder if being bathed in all that intense love gave him the confidence that he had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that's probably what happened. I, I've never met my grandmother, on my, my dad's mum, but I had met Conkers, um, my grandfather, and he was just a gentle person as well, like my dad. And they were very loving. It's just amazing that people could have this hardship and, and toughness that's going on where it should make people really angry and bitter. But they were just the sort of family, people that chose to be sort of gentle and kind to people. And look, it's, it's not me just romanticising my family, but anybody who had met my dad or my grandparents always said that that's the way they were. As you say, the family moved around a bit. They had an itinerant life and they were picking fruit and vegetables. The family lived in a humpy for a while. What did Jimmy tell you about living in that humpy, what that meant, what they had and what they didn't have living there? Oh, well, they lived in humpies most of the time. Sort of like they can rent or build a house. They lived in humpies and tents most of the time. And um, How would they make a humpy in those days? Oh, you know, well, Dad talked about one of the places, particularly when they were on camera, that they made their houses out of whatever pieces of corrugated iron or bags, you know, the flower sacks, right? Yeah. yeah, and they'd put paper on the walls to sort of make it warmer, and and of course they'd have a fire inside. A fire and, inside in these yeah, intensely flammable humpies. Yeah. Well, he referred to the homes. I said, Dad, what were the houses like? And he said there were. Highly flammable. <laughs> and, and, and one of the houses burnt down that he lived in, you know, one of the humpies, and they were lucky to get out of that. And, but there they were again, you know, living on a property where they were doing fruit picking and they had to rebuild whatever things that they can collect and make for themselves. It seems like he had a really good diet because you write that Jimmy remembered he had always had mushrooms and fish and crawfish and fresh fruit, fresh vegetables and fresh milk living around those farming areas. Yeah, they had that advantage, particularly with milk and wherever they worked, they'd be picking fruit or uh, vegetables or something or, you know, with the canals that go through to do the irrigation, you get a lot of crawfish in there. And when they'd moved to the south coast... They relied on fishing and uh, what they can get from the sea. So in a way, it was a, a much healthier lifestyle despite the hardships. Did he get much schooling as a kid? 
look, he didn't do much schooling at all. I mean, because he was the eldest, there were two sisters and two brothers born after the other two, that the younger ones passed away from tuberculosis. But as being an older son, he joined his father out working and make money and send it back to raise the other four children. So because of that, he missed out on a heap of school. But the welfare caught up with that then, you know, and said, oh, you've got to go back to school and, you know, otherwise we're going to send you up to one of those homes. Did your grandparents live in fear of that, that Jimmy or the other kids would be taken from them? Oh, all the time, because it was one of those things that you'd see it. Dad remembers. You'd see the welfare would come in. They'd, they'd question whether families were doing the right thing, particularly when this was around Nowra and Wurundji where they grew up because that was the bombardary home which did the most taking of children and apprenticing them out or putting them into other institutions and working as domestics and all sorts of things. So there were cousins that were taken he escaped that and he was very aware of you know, being lucky to escape that. Then in 1950, Sissy, his mum, your grandmother, was undone by the tiniest accident. Can you tell me what happened, Francis? Well, they did fish and they had that wonderful diet of seafood and it was because of this, this tiny little incident where my grandmother cut a finger on an oyster shell and... There wasn't much treatment. It's not like people just popped into the doctors or anything, but it festered and it got really bad and she um, contracted tetanus and she didn't live very long after that. So he was 13 years old and he remembers his mother dying of tetanus. How hard was it for the family to bury her properly? Well, we didn't know this until Dad and I went back and started doing some research at the archives and one of the things that we'd found in the welfare records was that they didn't bury my grandmother for a long time and it was partly because they didn't live on the chosen mission. So when she had died they'd said oh we're not burying her until you pay and all that. Well you didn't have money living that sort of lifestyle. So she was they just kept her there while the welfare argued about who's going to bury her and who's going to pay for it. And my poor grandfather, you know, bad enough grieving for his wife, he tried to raise money and things. And so he he had a truck there that he used to get around in at least. So he found some work and he tried to get there. And in desperation, he couldn't afford petrol, but he thought that he might be able to use other fuel. And unfortunately, he put it in tank and it uh, flared up and he was given serious burns and hospitalised over that. So it was a dreadful time. So where was your grandmother buried in the end? Uh, They ended up burying her in an Aboriginal grave just east of Nowra in a place called Roseby Park. And we don't know where she is now because those records have gone. I have tried very desperately, uh, like with my grandfather, to find these places so I can give them you know, headstones and stuff, but we can't find it. So she's somewhere there in Roseby Park, but at least Dad and I would go down and visit the cemetery and just talk with her, you know. (laughs) Jimmy's character was naturally optimistic. I wonder how you think her premature death, her leaving 
him at the age of 13. I wonder how you think that affected him. I think he was always deeply hurt by that. I mean, he he talked about that in his later years, in his 60s and his 70s, that he hoped that his mother was able to be proud of what he's been able to do. But it was very hard for him. But I think that's probably something that sort of spun him into this thing where he, he'd seek music as solace, where he can pour out his emotions and things like that. And it probably led him to become a singer and a musician. Yeah, it had a deep effect on him. So you think there was, he was always able to draw upon that deep well of emotion for his singing then? Yeah, he did. You know, they say, oh, he didn't write a lot of his own music and stuff, but he was definitely a singer and knew how to interpret words and use his voice for that. And that's, you know, one of the things that's really appealing about his singing, not just the, the, the nice voice, it was also that he was able to express the emotion of the lyrics that he'd have. So it gave him a lot in terms of getting over the grief or probably the hard things and in life that he experienced. I listen to Jimmy's voice, Francis, and I hear a voice that's got enormous warmth, of course, but a lot of control and cadence and timing and precision there. How focused was he on developing that really distinct, gorgeous tone that he had? Yeah, that's right. He did learn from listening to other singers. Some of his favourite singers were Nat King Cole and Jim Reeves. And, of course, you can hear with their voices the, the similar thing, great control, breathing and enunciation and things. And, yeah, he studied that well. And I remember, as, you know, being really young, hearing my mum and dad talk about maybe my... Because we, you know, Aboriginal accents, right? I remember my mum and dad talking about, should I have enunciation lessons? <laughs> because we'd have this Aboriginal accent and he used to put also his H's in the wrong place. I remember that as a kid and being told, oh, you got to speak properly. <laughs> so he did have people that he admired for that and practice it himself. So when he starts to emerge as a singer, he seems to be this very fully formed singer. He seems to have done all the work beforehand so that he can sort of break as a kind of an overnight sensation. How did he start to get his first break on Australian radio, Francis? Um, back in the oh, 40s, there was a program run by Terry Deer, if anyone remembers his name, and it was the Australian Amateurs Hour, a bit like what we've got with Australian Idol and whatever now. So people would enter into the talent quest and things, and he went in, a 16-year-old, and he came out with second prize. And that was pretty amazing because they travelled up all the way from now on the back of a bean truck through the <laughs> night, you know, his dad and he. And because the bean truck went into the haymarkets, you know, for the fruit and veggies and things. And so they, they go in there and they've got to wait around for a while. They only had a quince between them. <laughs> And with the money that they had left, my grandfather said, you've got to buy a good shirt. You've got to buy, you know, and so for, for the radio. And uh, so, you know, it was, um, you know, a very serious thing. And then it yeah. come out with second prize, you know, particularly back in those days when you look at the way in which people thought and saw Aboriginal people back in the 1940s. Well, that's just it. I mean, you can't see the colour of a singer's skin on the radio. So did announcers, I wonder, 
make a point of pointing out that he was Aboriginal or make a point of not mentioning that he was Aboriginal? I don't remember it being sort of a big deal with radio, but definitely with magazines uh, back in the old days that it was always a story that they'd cover with him about what's it like for him to be an Aboriginal man and seek fame or, or to, you know, receive fame and, uh, and things with the fans. And and with my research for the book and stuff, there was so many articles that were written in the old days with magazines that were really popular. They were really embarrassing. They were they were quite <laughs> patronising you know, or uh, or worse than that. Yeah, well, you know, you'd be called darky or pigginy or living in humpies and all this sort of stuff. I mean, they made a big deal out of it. Oh, and, like um, so he was a noble savage, was he? Like some kind of primitive yeah, man who somehow yeah. ended up sounding like Nat King Cole. Yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Oh, look what we've got. That was also the period of time in the fifties and the sixties where the assimilation policies. Uh, were put forward and people were saying, oh, you know, isn't he good? He's just like us. But that wasn't such a big deal for the family. It was sort of like it was a big deal for people outside of that that thought that being Aboriginal was a big deal, particularly, you know, when he was breaking through barriers that hadn't been broken, broken before. So whether that was a good thing or a bad thing, but, you know, that was their problem. Yeah, That's was he bored and irritated it. by that uh, or offended by that? I mean, they, look, he's Aboriginal and he can sing, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah look, we'd laugh about it, mm. to tell you the truth, because we always knew, I mean, you know, I was raised that way, that to think that if people are, are being ignorant and racist about things like that, that it's not our problem. We don't have to wear that. That's what they want to say. That's what they understand. And, and he had a saying that, you know, he'd say that you treat ignorance with ignorance basically meaning that if they're going to be ignorant, then you just ignore them. There was always this constant thing to sort of say, you know, it doesn't, you know, you rise above it. You can't always rise above it, but what you do know is that it's their problem. That's not our problem. Podcast. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. As we said at the start, he met and married your mum, Marjorie, and then you came along. Francis mm. Clare, their only child, and he wrote mm. this song for you. She's our own little girl, all we have in this world. She lightens our heart every day. You should see when she smiles, though she knows all the while. That no one can steal her away. So that's a hell of a thing to have Jimmy Little write a song for you like that, Francis. Mm. What a beautiful song. It's a bit like his version of his, well, and precedes it, Isn't She Lovely by Stevie Wonder. He wrote that yeah. about his daughter, Aisha. There's a line in that song, though, 
you should see when she smiles, though she knows all the while that no one can steal her away. I imagine any Aboriginal person listening to that line would know what it meant. And at the time, the great majority of non-Aboriginal people would have had no idea what he's talking about there. Do you hear that that line about being stolen away there, Francis? Mm, yeah, look, I didn't catch on for a while, but it is a really... You know, I used to think that was a really peculiar thing to say, that no one will steal me away, like, as if anybody will want to steal me. But at that time, it was really uh, in the 50s, uh, peak time of when Aboriginal children were being stolen, as we know, the stolen generations now. So it was really good that, it, you know, he was able to say that and make that point. Yeah, you know, so Aboriginal people did get it because there were so many of our children stolen. But he framed it in language that spoke of how precious you were to him. Is it strange for you to hear that now? Oh, it's just strange hearing about, you know, how he says I'm lovely and all that. But <laughs> <laughs> that's a, It's a lovely thing to have a father write a song like that about how much he loves his daughter, I think. He was on the music shows at the time, like Bandstand and Six O'Clock Rock on the ABC. He spanned genres from pop, to crooning ballads, to country music. And it seems like country music was his favourite genre. Did you have a problem with that and still have a problem with that country yeah. music? You do? Yeah. I, look, I had to come to terms with a couple of things <laughs> with my dad. You know, I, I, I don't mean, mean to be disrespectful or anything, but, um, you know, I found it really hard. However, the one thing I'll say about the country music thing with my dad is that it kept his career buoyant because country fans are pretty loyal, I think. I love old country music, like going back to Hank Williams, that kind of period, the country oh, music. Oh, so do I. I. I grew up with all that. <laughs> Hank Williams, you know, Hank Snow, look, any Hank. <laughs> There's a theory about that that says that the reason why you often hear howling in country music, it's, it's, it's a howl of missing your own country. Country boys and women going to the city and missing the country that they're from. Mm. I wonder if that there's a clue there for why Jimmy might have liked country music so much. Yeah, look, I, I did ask him when I was interviewing him, I said, why do so many Aboriginal people like country music? Even people of my age and that. And Dad said, look, the thing that appeals, he said, I think, that it was uh, people coming from the country before they moved down to the cities. And country music sort of speaks about the things that was of interest to them because there's this really interesting paradox about country music being so-called redneck and then, of course, you know, why would black people like country music? But it is about people living on the land and having to leave the country and so people of my generation and even younger Aboriginal people, you know, they all grew up with country music and it's still something that kind of ties us to family as much as anything else. Then there was his big breakthrough hit in 1963, Royal Telephone, and you really hear his voice at its best in that song. Telephone to glory, oh what joy divine, I can feel the current moving on the line, made by God the Father for his very own, you may talk to Jesus on this royal Never busy. That was an old Burl Ives, well not an old one, it wasn't old then, a Burl Ives song that he picked up and covered and sang better than Burl Ives. Mm. Went to number one in Sydney, number three 
in Melbourne. And the closest thing I can hear to Jimmy's style at that time is, I, I think I can hear a little bit of Jim Reeves there. Put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone. Was Jimmy a fan of put your sweet lips a little closer to the phone back in the day? Oh, yeah, I heard that a lot. Too much? Uh, yeah, too much, too much. <laughs> but it was really fortunate that... You know, festival records at that time, which, you know, no longer exists, it's something else now, but they approached Tommy Tico, who was a really well-known musician and producer and things. And and so, you know, you get all the horns and the orchestra and everything behind it. So, yeah, people still like that song. There have been people who have said that the success of Jimmy Little at the time reflected a more progressive Australia, a more tolerance, if that's the word, Australia. What do you make of that apparent contradiction, Francis, between the cruelties perpetrated upon Aboriginal people at that time and the crazy popularity of Jimmy as a performer? Yeah, look, I don't know if it was that. If you look at it now, the people who went on Australian Idol, like Jessica Malboy or Casey Donovan or people love Dan Sultan and they're not necessarily singing Aboriginal songs. They're people who just sing commercial pop songs, whatever. There's something, I think, that is really hypocritical of the way that we look at Aboriginal people in this country and also how we revere them as singers. So I'm, I'm not sure that I can work that one out, but if you kind of look to the, the situation in America, I mean... Gosh, who doesn't know anything that's been done by black Americans, you know, from soul to reggae to hip-hop or whatever. So there's a really interesting kind of paradox between being Aboriginal or being black and singing in countries like Australia or America. In the 60s and 70s, there was a new generation of Aboriginal activists who spoke up against the policy of assimilation. Was Jimmy accused of being too assimilationist at that time? Yes, unfortunately, a lot of people had, understandably, I suppose, but it wasn't very nice for us as a family that people misunderstood that what it was about was Jimmy was only successful only because he was Aboriginal and that he uh, presented being like the poster boy of assimilation and I think Dad had an answer for that, saying, look, maybe if I was a novelty, if I was ever a novelty, then you don't stick around in a career for 50 years being a novelty. So it was about him having talent. It was about him being a terrific singer. And it was about him being a nice bloke. Also being very proud to be Aboriginal and yorta yorta. He had some more hits in the 70s, but in the 80s, the work started to dry up and so he became a teacher at the Eora Centre in Sydney. How did he take to teaching? He loved it. It was something that was really new for him. My dad was called in as to be one of the mentors and the really great thing was that he had other teachers and particularly students who were very respectful of him. So he learned a lot from them and he says, I hope they learned a lot from me. You write that he wanted the students at the Eora Centre to be aware of their own natural inner Aboriginal beauty so that mainstream audiences would be drawn in rather than distracted or confronted by their Aboriginality. Oh, yeah. Look, that was definitely something. Look, Dad always thought that Aboriginal people had a charm, Right. He said, look, they're naturally charming and I wish that they could see that rather than kind of looking at 
the negative stuff that's said about them as being Aboriginal, he, he thought if they could plug into that, they're being sort of special and talented and charming. And he was always really aware of Aboriginal people being great on as performers. I suppose the way people think Aboriginal people are great at football or something, but uh, he saw that with Aboriginal singers a long time ago. In the late 90s, a man named Brendan Gallagher from the band Carmen County came into Jimmy's life. Tell me the story of how those two people met, teamed up and did something quite extraordinary. Yeah, Brendan had this idea for a long time to look at some of the great songs that were written by Australian songwriters in the 80s from the reels to the church and all those people and you know, thought it would be really good if we could hear those songs again. I'll just have to find the right person to do that. Then particularly through the, the period, I suppose, of Hanson, Pauline Hanson, and there was all that kind of thing happening where people were being particularly unkind to people of different races. And something had to be done, he thought. And, of course, you know, one night he's down at the, the Hope Town in Surrey Hills and Dad was doing this little show. You know, nobody remembered him or anything very much, but he was down there doing this show and he'd heard Dad singing and talking and said, that's the guy. That's the guy. You see, I'd always assumed that that album they produced together, Messenger, was the product of someone saying, we have this great singer, Jimmy Little, what can we do to bring him back into the public eye? And it's exactly backwards. It's like I have the Mm. question of these songs and then the answer to that question was Jimmy Little. Mm. That's exactly how, you know, and I mean, as Brendan often says, you know, we had a lot of time but not a lot of money. (laughs) So they took some time to do it and came out the way that it is. And I remember the dad coming home with this cassette and he, he wanted to play the um, Cruel Seas song down below. Fall with me down into, down below Alone in your, down below your heart I wait for you down below Till you fall apart Mum and I were sitting there, we could hear this kind of song. <laughs> and Mum was saying, no, no, that, that, no, no, that's just too weird. You know, that's not you. Fall with me down into the, the way that these songs were recorded, they were done in that kind of atmospheric lounge style that really mm. suited Jimmy's voice. When did Jimmy realise that there was a major hit on his hands? Well, I don't think anybody was expecting it. I mean, (laughs) it was something that was put together and next minute we're hearing it's 23 on the charts and thinking, oh, my goodness. And my son as well, you know, he was just a teenager at the time and we sort of say, Dad, you're you're being really cool. (laughs) And then all of a sudden, you know, all these younger people, a completely different audience to what he was used to, were turning on to him and it's really funny, like my son and I were thinking, oh, you know, our dad's a lot cooler than we are. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the album launch like? It was an amazing night. We go down there that night and dad dressed up in a, a white suit. He had his hair done and he gets out there and he starts performing and there were all these people who, you know, a lot of the people who he recorded uh, their songs 
He's been backed by Karma County and he really played it up. I mean, when, you know, he was sort of going into the guitar breaks, he'd pretend he'd be sprinkling sparkles on the guitar and he really <laughs> played it up. So it was an amazing night. You know, people from Cold Joy to the Cruel Sea guys, you know, they were all there and it, I was so happy to sort of see him back enjoying his music again. It wasn't about breaking through the first time. It was breaking through after extreme difficult times in their own lives. And it was also having to readjust to the sort of attention and stuff. And then I remember there was this program with Rob Stitch and those guys. The panel. The panel. And Dad comes home and he says, oh, they want to do an interview with me on the panel. He didn't know what the panel was and because uh, he didn't watch it. And so I, I, I nearly dropped, you know. I said, oh, gosh, you know, and I ring up my son. My son was down in Melbourne at the time and he said, no, I don't believe you. You can't be going on the panel, surely. <laughs> so they kind of took it in their stride, my parents. You know, they enjoyed it, but I don't think anyone was more shocked than I was or my son. <laughs> he was touring in the United States and in Europe and you're right that the musicians that he was touring with were impressed by his self-command and someone said that Jimmy Little knew how to be invisible and to be the centre of attention. What do you mm. think was meant by that? Yeah, no, it's a wonderful thing to say. He knew how to really turn on with his performances and stuff and just get out there and being in the zone and things like that. And then, you know, after all of that, he would just really... S- slow down a bit and go back into the, the quiet person that he was. And he really did know how to handle both sides of that, you know, from being in the public and in front of people and to then go back into being good old dad, you know. <laughs> I wonder if he was the classic introvert. You actually have to sort of have a bit of alone time to to put together your social energy once again, but in between do you kind of like things to be nice and quiet and just be around your family and or, or alone? Was he like that, do you think? Yeah, he was definitely like that. It's a fair thing to say that he was introverted and when he'd come home and stuff like that, it wasn't like we went out, you know, mum and dad were, you know, social people who have lots of people for dinner or go out to this or that or whatever, a turn up for everything. They just liked staying at home and... I remember someone saying that he was invited to go back to something after some show, I think it was Rock Quiz, to, to join everybody. And he turned around and said to Brian, oh, no, he said, Marge and I are just going to jump in the car, grab something to eat and listen to Jim Reeves and drive back home. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was, they just didn't get it. You know, there was kind of like all this fanfare and stuff, you know, that was going to be happening after Rock Quiz. But, no, he just wanted to get in a car and listen to Jim Reeves. But his idea of a good time was to be in a car, driving through the night with your mum at his side, listening to an album he's listened to 500,000 times before. <laughs> That's, that, yeah. that was his idea of a good time. Yeah, yeah. When he died in 2012, Casey Chambers said of Jimmy Little, she said, people are not just saying nice things about him now that he's gone. People were constantly saying nice things about him while he was here. I think people who remember Jimmy Little want him to be that nice guy that we saw on stage, that gentle, lovely man. And he really was that guy, wasn't he? Yeah, look, what you saw is what you got. He was like that at home. He was like that with just that he had all this energy with people. 
Uh, Mum and I used to think, oh gosh, you know, we're really wondering about if it was wearing him down a bit. But it seemed that all that kind of energy gave him more energy talking to people and all that sort of stuff. And then he quietened down very much afterwards. And people did say nice things about him. And I was asked once, though, if, if you don't mind me saying, that someone said, but there must have been a dark side to your dad. And so I'm thinking, you know, and I, I asked my son as well, I said, you know, what's the dark side of dad? Because it's really, <laughs> it's getting really hard to just talk about him being a nice guy. <laughs> and we decided the dark side of dad is that he loves all those vigilante films, you know, where you get people like Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson, the one guy that goes out and beats everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's his worst vice. He watched uh, Chuck Norris well, movies and, yeah, and listened to Jim of, Reeves too often. That's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not very cool, is it? It's not very it? impressive but, you know, as far no, as vices go, right? Yeah. You waited a long while to write this biography. He's been gone now for more than a decade and he and your mum asked you to write this biography a long time. Before that, why do you think it took so long for you to write this biography? Um, look, I've got to be honest with you. I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to write this. Why not? Well, I was trying to do a PhD at the time at the ANU and it was also that expectation of, you know, having to sort of write something about family that you kind of think maybe I'm not up to the job. You get too involved. You want to, you know, hear things from your parents that you don't necessarily want to hear. Mm. And I went around asking people and nobody wanted to do it. Of course not. Can you imagine being approached by Jimmy's little daughter saying, oh, Dad wanted me to write the biography, but I don't think I can. Can you do it instead? Everyone's going to say no to that. Mm. Uh, I didn't get that at the time. <laughs> so I thought I'd try to kill two birds with one stone and write it as a PhD. But as much as I tried, the, the more that I was writing, I think this is wrong. This is not working. It was just killing it for me, really, to, to tell you the truth. So I had to let that go. And Do you think it might also have been the case, sometimes you have to be ready to write a book like this and you have to sort of have lived long enough and grown up enough, even if it takes well into your 50s or 60s or something like that to write, to write some books? That's exactly it. I, I didn't realise that at the time. I don't think I was quite ready. And also he'd passed away and I had to come to terms with the grief and stuff like that. Yeah, you, you've got to grow up a bit if you're going to do something about your parents. To write the book of a loving daughter, to do the work of a loving daughter. And, and even as you say this, I've just thought that when you were born, he wrote that song for you. And this is like your, oh. this is like a, uh, I don't know, it's not a favour returned. It's, it's, it's giving something to him now. Yeah, this, this book, it's definitely about doing something for my parents. I, I'm sorry to sound soppy, but that's what it was about. And writing a book, as difficult as a lot of it was, I went through the process of feeling like I was talking to them. You know, I was able to reach them in a different way. That was the way that I could feel that I could have them back in my life. Francis, thank you very much for telling your story and your dad's story today. Thank you. Francis Peters Little's book is called Jimmy Little, A Yorta Yorta Man. listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. 
For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au/conversations. Ever feel clueless during smart convos? Same here. Can't keep up with everything? Don't sweat it. We're in this together. I'm Tegan Taylor, unveiling your new curiosity quencher, Quick Smart. I'll be chatting with clever people about current topics like the ADHD boom, opting out of the law, Disney as a religion, and AI stealing our jobs. Just give me 10 minutes once a week. I'll be quick, you'll be smarter. It's Quick Smart. Find it now on the ABC Listen app.